Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The latest edition of Yirrimboi Festival will be taking place. Yirrimboi means tomorrow in the language of the Bunwurrung and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. And joining us on the line to tell us more about the program is Bunwurrung and Wemba Wemba woman Caroline Martin, who's the creative director of the Yirrimboi Festival. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Lucky. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> Very glad to have you on the program and really excited to talk about the program program for Year and Boy. There's such a breadth and depth of performance and inf- and ideas and conversations and so much more from cabaret to theater to conversations to uh, to films, the Year and Boy Black Films project. <laughs> so uh, in terms of putting the program together, you've had 2 years since I believe since the the last Year and Boy to develop the program. But what did you want to achieve with the festival? What's the aim of Yurimboy, apart from showcasing the work of Victoria's First Peoples, for example? What do you want the program to do? Well, actually, we do. We're very, very fortunate that we're actually um, had a development here because it enabled us to actually really think about whether we're going to be online or we're going to actually. Um, have a physical festival and just I'm so proud to say that in in six weeks time we'll actually open with an 11 day festival one of my visions the core visions for this festival is that it's very much about local first as you as you mentioned but and when I mention local I mean Victoria Koori community we want people to firmly see that we're actually very much a sophisticated living um, Koori culture in our own right. But what we actually want from our audience is to actually just celebrate the fact that our cultures, whilst they belong to us, they're actually for everyone. They're a part of um, Australia's history. And, and why not actually come and explore something very, very different? And Year and Boy First Nations Festival is, you know, we've got over 150 events. We've got more than 250 um, creatives actually creating some stunning works. And like you just mentioned, you know, we're doing theatre, cabaret, circus, um, lots of children's programs this year, and, yes, black films and comedy. So there's something absolutely for everyone in this festival, and we, we're just, we just can't wait to, to have everyone come and explore with us. Let's start by talking perhaps about the visual arts program and the way that the visual arts program then crosses over with other elements of the program. A Fight for Survival, for example, which is uh, both uh, exhibition but then extending out into performance as well. I'm sure many Triple R listeners, certainly long-term listeners, would be familiar with the the fight to save Northland Secondary College under the the Kennett government's kind of dictates to try and close down schools across the state. This was not only a, a story of survival, but a story of kind of, uh, of discrimination and people challenging a discriminatory, kind of, I guess, uh, edict from the government. And this is being presented as an exhibition. Well, it's actually being um, presented as, it's one of our commissions. We've got um, 
normally we purchase in programs or yeah we present and this year we're actually have got um, 10 commissions and this is one of our commissions and Northlands is actually going to not only as an exhibition it's actually also a cabaret so in cabaret style they will tell the history um, of the fight for survival of the North Main Secondary College that was instigated by students um, in 1992, particularly Mutha Masinapan and Bruce Foley, who actually took the government's move to close them down to equal opportunity and, um, and took them for systematic racism and won. And so... You know, I've been asked why a cabaret, but, you know, why not a cabaret? You know, the Victorian Koori community have always celebrated in cabaret style for for lots of things, for fundraisers and such. So this is just a, another extension of that. And with it will be a beautiful photo exhibition and exhibition of, of the visual arts of the students um, from North Lands College as well. Now, there's also an exhibition, Deadly Narratives, which is presented by Koori Heritage Trust and not only, I guess, representing the acquisitions of Koori Heritage Trust and the collection that they have, but also acknowledging the fact that they've now, uh, I think it was, what, five years ago, they moved from uh, the, the west end of the city right into the heart of the city, into Federation Square. So, and which is which is wonderful for us, which is wonderful for you know the the Victorian Koori community, and it's wonderful, you know, fantastic for everyone that gets an opportunity to come into Melbourne because we have a place that is about us, right in the heart of the city, and so yeah, this exhibition of their collections is is absolutely going to be stunning, and we 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 are so fortunate that they're actually. Um, having this exhibition at the same time with us. So, yeah, we, we love our partner uh, organisations and Koori Heritage Trust is very much one of those that we, um, we can't wait to showcase as well. Now, you mentioned comedy in the festival program as well and that kind of... The Aboriginal sense of humour is something that is acknowledged certainly at the moment during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with uh, uh, an acknowledgement by Uncle, Uncle Jack Charles at the start of every show. But the Deadly Funny Showcase, which is happening at the outdoor stage at the Malthouse Theatre as part of Year and Boy, an opportunity to see some of the best First Nations comedians in the country. Oh, absolutely. Like, we're actually, we, we talked about one of our programs is Resilience in Isolation, and I can't tell you how resilient our people are when you consider everything that our people continue to go through with, with um, the ongoing colonisation of, of our people. Comedy has actually got us through. It actually is what creates the resilience of us as well. If you can't laugh at, laugh at it, what, what else have you got? So the very fact that we've actually got comedy in this program, we, we, met, we you know, I talked before about partnering up with, um, with great partner organisations and we actually partnered up with International Comedy Festival this year to do a showcase of, of all of their deadly funny comedians. So, yeah, we're very excited about that. There's so much in this program. It's really hard to, to nut it down to just a few things. But, yeah, we've, we've got everything. 
Absolutely everything. Well, I, I absolutely agree because having kind of been looking through the program at length, you could we could spend ten minutes just talking about dance and theatre, for example, or just cabaret oh. and circus. There's such a, a there's a, which is perhaps testament to the vibrant nature of contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture in this country. The 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 celebration of seventy five thousand years and more of history as embodied oh. in contemporary performance so that adaptation of taking i guess the language of the colonizers in terms of art form and go because oh, 75,000 yeah. years ago it wasn't things weren't broken down into art forms it was all just part of life and whereas now us white fellows are like oh but is it music or is it circus or is it cabaret or <laughs> kind of trying to put it into a box so the the but the sheer fact that the, that vitality and richness of culture is kind of filling up all the boxes and overflowing. That's a terrible metaphor, I think. But kind of, there's a, a real sense of just how rich and vibrant and strong Aboriginal culture is in the Year and Boy program, regardless of the art form we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. You know, and this is this is pretty much like it goes back to your first question, Richard, in relation to you know what is it that you want people to experience? We want them to actually, you know experience the evolution of of who we are and and actually accept that that this is our expression of of who we are and and not the unfortunate thing is that people do think that you know we're dot paintings and didgeridoos and and of course south australia is uh, south australia sorry the southeastern of australia is absolutely not about dot paintings and didgeridoos with all respect we're actually about Everything, like we we're, like we we're actually just mentioned there, we're all genres. We've got a variety of fun for all ages and all genres. Loads of music, theatre, cabaret, circus, comedy, and yes, black films. So everything's everything's on offer, um, and and we just want you know this this festival is is really a celebration of the sophistication of us for everyone. And, and all we want from everyone is to actually get on board and celebrate with us. Because this, like I said before, you know, our history, you know, is everyone's history. Our culture is everyone's history. And we just want everyone to be proud as, as much as we are. Now, there's a couple of events that I'm especially keen to see, and I wanted to just touch on them briefly. Yeah. The theatre production Big House Dreaming by Declan Ferber-Gillick, which I missed in its original Melbourne Fringe season, so I'm so glad this is coming back, being presented at Art Centre Melbourne. Uh, Declan, uh, an Arento writer from Central Australia, and blending, I guess, the the vibrancy of, of hip-hop with theatre and looking at the the juvenile justice system, the justice system more generally, and what it means to be a man in Australia today. I've heard such great things about this particular play, so I'm so glad it's back uh, as part of Yurimboy. Oh, absolutely. I had the um, opportunity to, to see it at the Darwin Festival, and apparently it's got a new iteration, so it's actually just growing and growing. So it was at the Fringe, it was at Darwin, and now it's 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 back in Melbourne, but it's at the Art Centre Melbourne. And, you know, Declan is incredible, and we're really looking forward to Big House Dreaming as well. So, yeah, there's free tickets, there's purchase tickets. There's, like, it's a, it's a very accessible festival. There's, like, it's not it's not expensive. Can I just... I just do want to do a bit of a shout-out to um, 
the grand organ that we have in Melbourne. It's pretty pretty special. And this year, what is incredibly special about it is we've got James Henry, um, who will actually be fusing techno with traditional uh, language and on the organ. Like, it's just incredible. Like, I just... You know, like I said before, it's just so big, this festival. It's so hard to actually get a grip of everything. We've been working really hard. It's probably our biggest festival yet. Um, but, yeah, I know there's a lot of people that love the Grand Organ, and this year is just going to be as special as it has been every year in the Yerrimboy Festival. So we're really looking forward to that as well. Yerrimboy runs from the 6th to the 16th of May, presented by the City of Melbourne. Uh an 11-day festival celebrating the the vitality and the diversity of contemporary First Peoples arts and culture here in Melbourne. There's so much to talk about. Uh, There's Circus, for example. Harley Mann, who I've interviewed on this show a few times, has got a new show, Arterial. Uh, Joel Bray, uh, Wiradjuri dancer and choreographer, has got a new show, Considerable Sexual Licence, which, knowing Joel and his work, will be provocative and beautiful simultaneously. Briefs Factory, who do remarkable cabaret, doing a new show, Bread, and uh, a work which I think is... uh, Am I right in thinking, Caroline, it's a bit of a collaboration with Rising, the uh, the, the program Seasons in Black Box, which is a, a series of conversations that will be running uh, from May into June. At the Royal Botanical Gardens. Oh, absolutely. We've, we've, we've been very, very fortunate to work with Rising. We've got a few programs with Rising, but this the Black Box is incredible. It talks about the seasons of the, the Kulin Nation, more particularly the Bunwarang and the Woiwurrung, and so you have an opportunity to experience the seasons. You know, we talk about four seasons. In the Bunwarang and the Woiwurrung, we have six seasons, so you get to learn more about the seasons and probably understand more about the ecology of our country through through the six seasons. So, yeah, a stunning, a stunning program at Royal Botanical Gardens with our, our partners rising on this. And seasons in particular, you mentioned uh, James Henry, uh, there's new music by him, and this is a work that particularly for people who are blind or vision impaired, it's a listening experience, so music, spoken word and song happening in the Royal Botanic Gardens. And speaking of, I guess, the the seasons of the... uh, the, the Kulin Nation calendar. Just quickly, we're in, uh, we've just entered April today. It's the first day of April. Can you tell us what season we're in at the moment? <laughs> oh, you're good. <laughs> I actually, it's a beautiful, they're pretty big seasons. So it's like the, um, it's like the coming down of the sun. So you know how we're actually going into winter? Yep. So they talk about it. It's, it's bigger than just actually like having a sentence that says summer. It's like, Good, um, it's like saying goodbye to the old man's son and for renewal for the, for the rest of the, um, this season. But much more than that. You'll have to go to the black box to actually learn more about it because you can't just say, you know, in English like they do winter, summer, spring and autumn. We actually have huge descriptions that talk about the land, the water and, and the whole of Mother Earth that actually describe each of the seasons. So... So, yeah, I'm not going to give too much more away than that because I think it's really a, a very immersive experience and, and one that's just not 
not said in a, in a single word or a single sentence. Which reinforces, Caroline, what Yurimboy is in many ways. Yes, it's an arts festival. Yes, it's a celebration of the first peoples of Victoria. But it's an opportunity to learn as much as an opportunity to experience and celebrate. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's... And, you know... We put this on because we want to be seen. We we deserve our people deserve to be seen. This is this is you know four thousand generations of sophistication. Our our people have have survived and we continue to thrive. And and so this is really like mentioned before. It is a celebration of us for everyone. And we and we just want everyone to celebrate and feel the pride that we actually absolutely feel every day we're walking on this country. And that's, and that's what we want. We want to come together with everyone in celebration. So what better opportunity to do it than come to Yurimboy First Nations Festival? Yurimboy runs from the 6th to the 16th of May for full details about the program and the broad range of events. We've barely scratched the surface. Just go to yurimboy.com.au. I've been chatting with the festival's creative director, Caroline Martin. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R today. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. My next guest joins us on the line. Stanislava Pinchok uh, has an exhibition called Terra Data showing at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. And Stanislava, this is your first ever kind of, uh, I guess, museum survey of a significant body of your work that must be uh, kind of both daunting and exciting to have uh, such a, a survey mounted. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's quite quite surreal still it's, it's um and in, you know one of my favorite places in the city as well so it still doesn't quite feel real to be honest I, even though it's not too difficult because there are no new works it kind of comes with a lot of emotions and a lot of a lot of kind of retrospection as well which has been quite incredible i know that for some artists the idea of uh a survey show of their work can be intimidating on one level because it involves looking back at the earlier years of your practice and seeing how your work has shifted or grown or changed. That can sometimes make artists go, oh, I wish that wasn't in the show, that work still embarrasses me. But what does it feel like for you as an artist to to have that opportunity to kind of look back at your own career and consider the works that you've made that have led you to this point in time? Uh, yeah. I think I'm quite lucky with this show because it's uh, it's the last five years of work, uh, so five bodies of work from five years. So the really embarrassing stuff isn't in there, <laughs> uh, which I'm which I'm quite grateful for. But yeah, it's funny because I'm a I, I think I'm not at all nostalgic person. I'm perhaps sentimental in my soul, but not nostalgic. So looking back is, is it's kind of different because I feel like I'm always so optimistic about the future. So it's been a really really interesting. Thing, but um, I've just decided to move back to to Sarajevo in Bosnia. So, at the same time, it, the show's actually been an incredible homecoming, and um, only six of the works out of I believe forty seven have ever been shown in the city before. So, lots of my friends even haven't seen them in person before, let alone many people here. So, it's been a really, really wonderful experience to to kind of have. Yeah, friends and, you know, long-time acquaintances and people I've worked with actually see the work in person. Now, now the fact that it's uh, looking at five years of your practice is not only a reminder of the way that time shifts, but the exhibition itself is looking at the way 
the ground shifts under our feet and particularly uh, the earth as impacted by trauma. We think about trauma impacting on the body physically or emotionally, but you're looking, for example, at the impact of war on the landscape physically. Absolutely. I'm, I think I kind of see the practice as being a lot more kind of architectural or almost journalistic or as a practice of surveying, but I love that it exists in the museum space or in the gallery space um, because I think that's a really beautiful umbrella to kind of show propositions and different taxonomies under that's quite uh, expansive and also, you know, kind of more forgiving than maybe academic journals or things that are a little bit more, uh, you know, industry-specific. So, yeah, but I think it's, it's very much, I think, about the idea of evidence and kind of witness and, you know, I think atrocities of human rights that are so often denied and, you know, kind of inscripted with a certain um, cultural amnesia, you know, and a prescribed kind of social forgetting, you know, it's very difficult to deny these things, I think, when you do have a ruin or a record on the land, you know, and I, I think that's a really important thing to talk about in the memory of land and its kind of capacity um, as a vessel of, you know, of people, you know, pe people are the land, you know, and I think growing up in Ukraine, that was always a really big kind of connection, I think, for me, and I, I guess maybe that's where the practice comes from. Certainly, let's talk about uh, one of the works which data maps the first year of the Ukrainian Civil War, Surface to Air, which not only then looks at the, the, the topography, uh, the way terrain is impacted, but the space be above the ground as well, the air itself. Yes, that was sort of the first body of work where I, I really feel like my practice started and they're the first works that are in the exhibition um, as it hangs chronologically. Yeah, and it was very much about the space that is, you know, what I was talking about as witness and evidence, but also the things that are ephemeral and, you know, the things that hang in the air. That body of work was called Surface to Air and that was a big reference to the um, book missiles uh, that were used in the, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine and, you know, an illegal and heartbreaking invasion, you know, more than, you know, what, what is sometimes called the Ukrainian civil war is, you know, must be said as an illegal invasion of the country. Uh, and so these kind of missiles that went from surface, surface to air uh, were a kind of huge hallmark of the early days um, of the conflict. And um, I thought kind of spoke to a huge resonance about the, the kind of um, terrestrial, I guess, but also what, what hangs overhead. And, you know, this has also been a war of, a kind of misinformation and hybrid warfare and data and um, news and you know a real kind of a real kind of uh, test and telling for what came after you know with with Russia's meddling and you know America and the like you know was no surprise to any Ukrainian you know uh, because we'd been the test case you know of fake news and misinformation for a long time as well as. Kind of uh, landscape and data and kind of many other elements that you incorporate into your practice. You also collect uh, and kind of represent the, the kind of detritus of war, shotgun shells and uh, and old, but also old SIM cards and the like. And I know that one of the works uh, in uh, the exhibition Teradata at Heidi. Uh, features some of the 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 what was left behind when migrants were forced out of uh, a jung the the, the so-called jungle camp in 2016 in Calais. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I only collected detritus from, from one project, which was Calais, because, you know, for me, with, with this kind of surveying practice, it's very important that you don't meddle with, with the earth, you know, and what you're, what you're mapping. Um, uh, and with Calais, I think it was, um, uh, because I, I worked there for about six months on and off, mapping in the, in the last, time that I went, I was incredibly shocked at how quickly the camp had been raised and, you know, raised, you know, from a kind of real civic structure of eight to 10,000 people to nothing at all, to, you know, a park on the industrial outskirts of the industrial outskirts where, you know, uh, it was presented as an altruistic act by the French government. But of course, you know, what it did was kind of terraform, you know, a quite substantial, you know, city and real, you know, polis of, you know, um, civic structure into a park that nobody goes to. And um, it was a kind of real, uh, you know, terraforming and complete erasure of the land. And so that was, I think, the only project where I took the last 20 kilograms uh, of what was buried in the earth that um, really looked like terrazzo and set it in exactly similar blocks. And I think it just kind of came out of anger and just kind of wanting to preserve the nature of the land and make it, you know, indisputable and catalogue every object left before it was erased. And, um, yeah, those blocks are very small and there's very few of them and they're very kind of close and precious to me and I, I feel, yeah, quite quite protective of them, I think. One of the things that intrigues me uh, about what I know of your practice, Stanislava, is also the fact that while you're talking about... Uh, War and trauma and the uh, and uh, forced uh, migration and and all these kind of painful aspects of humanity. There's a delicacy simultaneously that, uh, in contrast to that, kind of creating work through tiny kind of labour-intensive pinpricks into paper, for example. Absolutely. I mean, I think a big idea of my work was, you know, how do, how do you show. And these kind of, you know, the, you know, the really difficult geopolitical, you know, parts of the world that we live in, and you know, the, also the things that you know belong to the countries that I've I've lived in, and you know, uh, a part of my autobiography in one way or another. And I kind of the big idea was, you know, for me, how how do you show it in a way that you haven't already seen it, you know, in, in photojournalism perhaps, um, and how do you kind of make people see something a little bit. And new or in an unexpected way and I think for me that is to kind of pull of beauty you know to make things that look like there could be something else and only sort of reveal themselves when you get when you get quite close to them and I think there's a kind of really tremendous power in beauty you know beauty is a way to uh, you know attract and pull in uh, you know across the room and you know in a really similar way to maybe the way that we use food or music or dance or humor you know um, it's like an incredible kind of um, medium that you can kind of subvert into a wider wider truth and a, a wider kind of idea. And I think that that's absolutely their power and that's what I've always been drawn to. I know it's not very modern, but I just really want to make beautiful things and, you know, I really want to leave beautiful things behind in the world. So I think that that's always where it, where that's come from and the laboriousness of, you know, lace-making techniques that I, you know, use in my drawing and, um you know, it's a really strong history to the, you know, the dawn of um, computing, you know, and uh, as weaving, you know, jacquard machines and binary punches that let you do combinations of weaves. So I've always really, really loved that reference and that kind of um, 
marriage between the, the two mediums. And also that evocation of trauma through by the through the act of creating uh, beautiful work and the the precision of a pinprick, for example, is also then referencing in some ways the long history of you've mentioned lace making. Let's talk about that for a moment. The fact that something which looks so physically beautiful uh, and and slightly perhaps fragile or delicate, but has been made through laborious, sometimes even uh, even physically painful uh, kind of uh, weaving and, and attention to detail. Uh, there's stories about uh, older lace makers who whose eyesight would be rapidly ruined, for example, because of the the precision of them of the work they were made. So you're also tapping into this history of uh, of the labour of women, the sometimes invisible and traumatic labour of women that manifests in beauty in the world. Absolutely. And, you know, now I, it's funny looking back at the show too, you know, that I really count myself among them, as, you know, noticing how much my eyesight has gone and, you know, my fingers have started to, you know, curl with arthritis. And, you know, it is physical work and it is really painful work. And it, it's, um, uh, you know, and it's always been kind of, political in a way, you know, uh, even for example, our, you know, word for spinster is um, from women who weren't burdened with, you know, children or running a house in the, in the same way. So they could spend more time spinning and earn more money and, you know, gain a greater greater autonomy, you know, and so that that's kind of the etymology of that word. But also, you know, so many revolutions of the last, you know, 300 years in the West, it, it's been weavers, you know. Um, and garment workers who have kind of led, you know, uh, some of those revolts, you know, and I think textiles have always been at, at the forefront of, you know, politics, whether, you know, sexual revolution or um, political revolution, you know, from the Soviets and the constructivists to the miniskirt, to the bikini, to, you know, um, to camouflage, you know, it's a, it's a really long and kind of tethered history um, and let alone the histories of, you know, battle tapestries and uh, political fabrics and resistance prints and banners. And, you know, it's always been, a, it's always been enmeshed, uh, you know, I think quite inherently. Stanislava Pinchuk's Terra Data is showing until the 20th of June at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. It's the first museum survey of, uh, of her work. Uh, you can find out more information by going to www.heidi.com.au and as we said the exhibition is on now, curated by Leslie Harding until the 20th of June. Stanislava Pinchuk, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Uh, my final guest for the morning joins us on the line. Hannah Fox is the co-artistic director of Melbourne's newest festival, Rising, which was launched on Monday, the festival itself running from Wednesday the 26th of May until Sunday the 6th of June. Hannah, thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Hi, Richard. How are you going? Really well, really well. I'm delighted to have you on the program. It's the Rising uh, festival as a whole. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to talk about. Let's begin by 
by talking about the fact that it's a winter festival. Dark Mofo, which uh, you've had previous involvement with, uh, has really demonstrated the value of cultural tourism in what was previously seen as a, a bit of a dead time for the tourism industry. But is there more to rising than just trying to activate hotel rooms in Melbourne in the middle of winter? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think when um, Gideon and I first took on this role with Rising, you know, we set about to really think about what a festival of place could do in this city. I think when you look at the kind of history, like both Melbourne International Arts Festival and White Night were really essentially imported uh, kind of cultural product. Um, and, you know, as significant as they were in, in shifting the cultural landscape here, I think we saw an opportunity to do something that really came from Melbourne and um, couldn't be done anywhere else in Australia or the world. So we're looking at what was here and, and you know, that includes, of course, such an amazing, diverse artistic scene across, you know, many different kinds of art forms, but also, you know, a real um, natural kind of ambience and parts of the city that we wanted to amplify and augment rather than try and kind of replicate elsewhere, if that makes sense. One of the things uh, about, I guess for me, one of the things that excited me about the program is the idea of... Instead of trying to ignore the fact that winter is on, celebrating uh, the darkness of late autumn and early winter, celebrating the idea of uh, of moonrise and celebrating the cold and just getting out amongst kind of Melbourne and recognising that this is that we as as 2020 taught us all humans are part of the natural world as much as we try and lock ourselves away from it lock ourselves indoors in winter and try and ignore it we are part of the world and it makes sense to be going out at in the, mm. these cold dark times of the year and coming together to to celebrate our culture our diverse cultures and the city that we live in absolutely and and that's you know really what we're thinking about when we were creating events like um, wandering stars and and the wild you know we felt that um, melbourne audiences are pretty adventurous all year round and you know certainly um used to pretty disappointing weather <laughs> so i felt that they could they would have the appetite to um, come out and get into the city and particularly the wilds in the sydney Maya music bowl which was you know, it's a, a kind of complete transformation of that site with a um, installed uh, forest of bamboo and architectural um, archways moving through the site, and an ice rink reinstated in the on the stage of the bowl. We were thinking a lot about uh, lockdown when we started making that because you know people were spending so much time in nature, in winter, being connecting with each other in those spaces. That was the only way to socialise at the time. So it was kind of the starting point of that concept. Now, one of the works that you've just mentioned briefly in passing, a giant luminous eel that will be wending its way down the river. Yeah, uh, so this is a um, project that we've been talking about since the very beginning. It's got the, the Birrarung or the Yarra River, as it's more commonly known, um, it's always been a really important site for us. You know, it's been a significant cultural meeting place for First Peoples for tens of thousands of years. And it's also this kind of defining line between Melbourne's north and south and, and a place that a lot of new um, visitors or, you know, immigrants coming to this city go to as a, 
um, meeting point. So we've, we're con- intending to commission some major works for the river every year, and this is the first of those. And it's a collaboration with a British company called the Liverpool Lantern Company um, and many, many local um, artisans and makers um, and community members who are coming together to make this huge installation on the river. It's 400 metres long in total. And it's telling the story of eel migration uh, using the night sky. Um, so it features a absolutely enormous eel, but also um, a moon cycle and um, elvers, which are baby eels, uh, and they're kind of tracking their migration through the river. It's also accompanied by a a sound piece that will sit alongside it with creation stories and, uh, you know, also contemporary kind of stories of that place. So I think it's going to be really beautiful. And and to accompany it, we're doing sort of cooking on coals and, you know, big uh, kind of food and wine zone on the north bank of the river alongside it. Now, it's not the only eel that's in the festival. There's going to be another eel projected on the side of Hamer Hall, I believe. And it's certainly not the only work uh, that will feature or revolve around the river. One of one such work is a sonic work, which even as we speak is, I believe, slowly making its way towards Melbourne down the Birrarung, the River of Mists from uh, up in the Yarra Valley. That's right. Uh, this is the River's Sing, uh, which is, it just opened uh, at Tarawara uh, last weekend and it's, it's moving its way down the Birrarung and the Maribyrnong over um, the next eight weeks and eventually landing in the city. And what it is is this truly ephemeral work. It's a really large-scale um, sound piece that has been created by Deborah Cheatham, um, incredible uh, opera singer and composer. And she's working with a number of other artists, um, including uh, sound artists Byron Scullin and Tom Supple, and singers as well, like Marlon Williams and Napalm, uh, the Dangala Children's Choir, all coming together to add their voices to this soundscape, which is projected through these incredibly powerful speakers that have a, approximately a two-kilometre radius that will kind of, you know, just appear in these locations over the coming week. And it's, you know, there's very much a sort of intervention, I guess, in, in public space. And so quite a short piece. It's around, um, you know, 12 to 15 minutes, depending on the day, because they remake their composition every single day um, in response to the site. And it's, you know... I guess functioning like a a Pied Piper sort of work for us, really, moving through Greater Melbourne and then coming back into the city and it will be heralding each night of the festival uh, at sunset every day. Now, is this work uh, really effectively just a a recreation of Siren Song, a work that was presented uh, at Dark Mofo, the festival you were previously associated with? It's certainly like a progression, I think, from um, that original work, but this is very much being led by Deborah Cheatham. Um, it's, you know, she has been doing some pretty deep research for, for quite a long time um, about songs of those places and, and working with uh, traditional owners of those locations to really unearth um, some original melodies and language um, to respond to those sites really clearly. So it's quite different in that sense. It also doesn't feature a helicopter. (laughs) And it's also... um, It's working with the voices of men and women and boys and girls. It's not um, purely female voices, which is a a real defining point of Siren Song. 
Um, so it's certainly influenced by it, but it is a new work and a new commission yeah. led by Deborah. Just had to ask that devil's advocate question because I know a couple of people have kind of been kind of raising their eyebrow when they saw it in the program. Now, one I of the things... expected that would come. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I wanted to uh, congratulate you and Gideon Obazanek on your co-artistic director and indeed the whole rising team is the... The fact that you've got access to the ballroom at Flinders Street Station. Now, when I was working at Express Media, the youth arts organisation from about 2000, 2005, uh, I think possibly even when I was at Next Wave back in 99, people were talking about the ballroom at Flinders Street Station, this great lost site of social dancing uh, and longing to see it and longing arts organisations longing to get access to it. it when I was on the, the chair of Melbourne Fringe, the, we were going, how do we, how do we get into it and hold a launch there and... You've got it. You've got this space that <laughs> Melbourne arts organisations have been wanting to access for 20 years or more. So congratulations. And what are you going to do with the space? Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been no small feat. We've been working on it for two years pretty consistently. Um, and I think we got quite lucky with timing. There's been sort of works um, going on, on that in that building to make it safe and accessible for people for quite some time. Uh, but it's been 40 years, actually, since the public has been in that space, um, and it's become this sort of near-mythical site and such an iconic sort of uh, image for Melbourne. And we're bringing it together with another major icon, Patricia Piccinini, who will be creating this sort of suspended parallel world in the building and it's not just in the ballroom but actually in the I think it's around 18 rooms that lead up to the ballroom she's making this linear exhibition um, of her work called A Miracle Constantly Repeated Uh, and it's very much about uh, I guess a rejection of that Darwinist kind of idea of survival of the fittest um, and working with this concept of nature being actually interdependent and um, cooperative and, and often quite nurturing. So she's making this sort of series of um, dioramas that her works are sitting within. Um, it's a, there's a whole layer of sound and light and even robotics in some spaces and film. And it's very, um, you know, people throw immersive around a lot, but it really is. <laughs> it's very layered. And it's opening with rising, but it's actually going to run for eight months to allow, you know, as much of the public through that space as possible because it's going to be quite an intimate experience. There's only um, 100 people allowed on site at any one time, so we're running it for a really long duration. As we mentioned earlier, Rising uh, is a new festival for Melbourne. It's responding to the city. It's responding to the environment. Uh, And it's grown out of... Well, many things, including state government discussion around uh, the lack of winter festivals and too many festivals clustered at different times of the year and so forth. And it's also effectively, in some ways, a a kind of merging of White Night and Melbourne Festival. What people associated Mm. with White Night, apart from crowds so large it was almost frightening to move through the city sometimes, is kind of outdoors, projections, site-specific works. How does that aspect of White Night reflect in the Rising program? Yeah, I mean, it's true that um, Rising came about because of a, um, you know, decision by state government to uh, basically pull those resources and and make a new festival. But it is very much a new festival. We're not, um, you know, taking kind of best of and and mashing it together. But I think what White Knight did really successfully was, you know, it was a very generous, clear invitation for 
all of the communities of Melbourne to come into the city and, you know, the city was theirs for that night. And I think in that sense, you know, we've really tried to think about big, generous, free events um, that can speak to many, many people of, of all ages and backgrounds. And it's not, for us, we're not really focusing on lighting up buildings. Like, it's not a festival of light. Um, and a lot of the works are really much more centred around participation uh, and, you know, that kind of communal activity, as you mentioned before, and, you know, ritual in public space, that grand public ritual is, I guess, where we're going with it. But also um, that... So it's not a... Just to, Sorry, so just to jump in, I was just going to say that idea of uh, works, that immersive works, participatory works, you've taken that quite literally. Uh, there's the opportunity to have a bath on Herring Island, for example. Yeah, this is one of my favourites. It's been created by um, Amanda Ross and Sarah Retallick, who are both Melbourne musicians and sound artists, and Amanda's a writer as well. And they've uh, created this work called Flow State, which is set on Herring Island, um, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would be aware, but a lot, a lot aren't as well, that um, it's a man-made island that's in the middle of the Yarra River. Uh, and they have created this sonic experience on that island um, with a series of fire-heated mineral bathtubs um, that you're taken to by boat um, all through the night. This is going to run from sunset to sunrise every day of the festival. Uh, and you're led to your bath and um, just left entirely alone. You can't see anybody else or hear anybody else. And each bathtub is uh, encased in these transducer speakers, um, which basically create this kind of vibrational sound which moves through the body. So it's, it creates a kind of bone conduction form of listening. And there's another layer to the score, which is sitting in kind of speakers, you know, hidden in the trees. So... It's about kind of multiple forms of paying attention um, and it's very sort of quiet, contemplative work. But just this, the idea of, for me of being sort of naked, alone, in the middle of an island, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the river, in the middle of a city is quite beautiful. <laughs> so I'm very excited about that one. So am I. I'm, I'm definitely, I will really want to experience that. There's an opportunity elsewhere for nude dancing. Uh, there's also opportunities to see some of the great dance companies of Australia. There's a new work created by Dance North from Townsville, for example, uh, and major new work by Chunky Move. Uh, there's the opportunity for people who've heard about some of the great works created by Back to Back Theatre but not seen them, a, a retrospective of Back to Back in the program. Yeah, we're, we feel so lucky to be presenting this. Um, I think one of the you know few upsides of the pandemic is that some of our greatest companies have been grounded, um, so we've been able to work with them in a relatively short time frame to do you know pretty significant things. And back to back is one of those. And I think you know there's. There's obviously these works have been shown in Melbourne before, but often, you know, once and ten years ago um, for fairly small audiences. So I think not only is it significant to bring these back after they've toured the whole world and had such great success, but also to introduce back-to-back and their work to a whole new audience who haven't seen it with some of their seminal pieces like um, Small Metal Objects, which is, you know, an incredible drama that plays out in public space via headphones and also food court which you know features a score by the next and live score by the next sorry and both 
both back to back of the necks, I think, have been trying to remount this work um, since it was uh, put on, I think, by Christy Edmonds in 2007, I believe. Um, but they've both been so busy touring all that time that there's just never the opportunity. So that feels really special to bring those works back. Um, and uh, and also Ganesh versus the Third Reich is the other one that they're uh, performing. So we're very excited about that. And I think the next as well is sort of they also have a kind of through line. There's a number of events um, featuring musicians from the next as well as um, two nights of concert from them. So we're trying to sort of work with this residency model, which I think we will take into future festivals as well. There's so much more to talk about, Hannah. We haven't even touched on the Chinatown program yet, but we're almost out of time. So I recommend that if people want to learn more about Rising, Melbourne's new winter festival, then jump online, rising.melbourne. It's a, an ambitious program, a bold program, a very deep and fascinating program, and I cannot wait to experience the festival firsthand, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of conversations with artists in the lead-up to the event one-on-one. I've been chatting with Hannah Fox, the co-artistic director of Rising, which is running from the 26th of May, starting, I believe, with a, a blood moon. Is that right? Yeah, a total moon or eclipse of a blood moon. How perfect. So starting on Wednesday the 26th of May, running through until Sunday the 6th of June, rising.melbourne for more information. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 